0: Welcome back to Amago Gay, a podcast dedicated to the value of Amago Day because equality and dignity of LGBTQ lives matter. This week, our co host is spiritual care provider Roxanne Del Valle, along with myself, Kendra Arsno, And we are discussing some examples from our first episode in the Redefined series, where we look at finding bigger boxes for a bigger God. This week, we are continuing our discussion on the Bible and in the spirit of finding community through common values rather than belief, we are expanding upon this topic with a few examples that hopefully help to settle this concept in a much more meaningful and grounded way. Happy National Hispanic Heritage Month, everyone. Our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International. So if you haven't already, Please sign up for their newsletters where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. So, happy National Hispanic Heritage Month. Yes, we are celebrating. And in the celebration of National Hispanic Heritage Month, we are continuing to read Abuelita Faith. And I wanted to share a quote from that book because it shows how lived experience gives you an essential point of view To really understand scripture.
1: Let's hear it. I'm excited.
0: It says when many of us with varying levels of privilege interact with Bible stories, particularly those of Jesus engaging with marginalized women, we often have to force ourselves into the narrative. I wonder if much of our abuelitas theological insight comes from the fact that they can see themselves clearly in the story. They don't need to stretch to imagine what it would be like to be the Samaritan woman or the persistent widow. Many of our abuelas know those stories intimately, not only because they've committed to studying them and their lessons, but because oftentimes those stories are about them. What they pass on to us is a knowledge about God that many of us spend our lives trying to obtain from books and conferences. Our abuelitas may have been, quote, uneducated by the dominant cultural standards, but they possess PhDs in prayer and Bible interpretation. They may not be ordained as official priests or pastors, but they've been playing those roles behind the scenes forever, noticed and called by God. And so I think this quote shows how lived experiences gives you an essential point of view to really understand scripture.
1: And how these people carry a legacy with them just i just think about those who have memory of the things of the past we know that history is bound to repeat itself and so to have these historians of sorts
0: yeah the abuelita seeing herself it's easy for her to see this passage and what it means clearly Because she is this person in this passage. The Samaritan woman, the Syrophoenician woman, the outsider, the widow with one son, and and her last bit of bread, and she's going to make bread for her son and die, and then this prophet comes, right? Like, these are stories that they've lived that experience, and kind of in common with our own lived experiences, why that's such an important point of view. Have you been able to see scriptures in a way more clearly, because you have seen yourself in these stories in ways that maybe somebody from a different class of privilege wouldn't be able to see themselves in the story. Do you feel connected to the immigrant story that is often the heritage of
1: Hispanics? It's so hard to speak on. As a Puerto Rican, it's a both and. I'm born with an American citizenship. I don't have the struggles of getting a visa or migrating to the U.S. with this paranoia. I know that some of our church members, when we were up going to camp, got stopped in the middle of the road and were questioned and then restrained and deported. Yeah. I and mean, that's not a fear that I've had to live with, even though I do face challenges. But it's just a little bit different I think there is some privilege being born an American citizen.
0: Yeah, I think as I'm reading this, the sympathy for the immigrant story. To me, when I read the Bible, passages that would feel so clearly is to be kind to the stranger and the foreigner within your gates. These commands that we're talking about immigrants, Ruth and her being a Moabite and her coming into a land where she was an immigrant and how she was treated with equality and respect. Those are things that because it's a part of my story, the generational story, where my mom immigrated even though she was married and she had access to the visa. And so there wasn't the element of overwhelming fear in her life, but there was this sense of outsidership and otherness that I think that experience gives me the lens to be able to see that in scripture and say, Of course we're supposed to be not doing what they're doing in Texas and busing all of those newly immigrated persons to D.C. or to Martha's Vineyard to prove a point about how hard it is to deal with the influx, and so we're going to push it on somebody else's door. I think for some people that might feel logical and rational because that's not a lived experience of theirs. Talking about the lens that experience creates when you read the Bible Were there any things that people looked at you and said, man, you're being so liberal about your perspective and your beliefs, but really it just came naturally to you? You didn't find yourself having to search for this interpretation, but something in your experience just gave you the lens to see something very clearly.
1: It's a little embarrassing, but... I don't think I was perceived as liberal. I think I was... I remember I was dating a guy who was talking to me about women's ordination, and I remember really having this hierarchy in my mind. And I think this was outside of my reach for a long, long time. I don't think anybody could have described me as liberal. I don't think... I could have ever permitted my experience to dictate my belief system. So mm-hmm. th- this is a very recent development in my life where I'm just now learning to validate the abuelitas, the, the firsthand experiences, the wisdom that comes from other fountains because I just lived in such black and white, rigid thinking and wherever there was a gap, wherever there was mystery, I trusted the people in my church that I thought were great interpreters of the word. Yeah. Um, and I trusted their interpretation more than I trust. I mean, it was the whole reason why I decided to go to seminaries because I was tired of deferring that responsibility to other people and having to trust so deeply on other people's hermeneutical interpretation. I'll just say this. I was so used to ignoring my own experience in a very systemic way. It wasn't just about scripture. It wasn't just about my moral life choices. It was even as simple as a biological need. My stomach is hurting. Well, I have an obligation to be at this place and I don't have the luxury to pay attention to this stomach ache or these cramps right now, and I'm going to just push through, and I'm going to get things done. And so I think I operated that way. I mean, it is mind-blowing, the life I have accessed just by validating my experience. I wasn't even listening to my body, much less my heart. I blame heels. (laughs) I think girls wearing heels and I wear heels <laughs> but you ignore the pain you ignore the pain uh, for I, wore, the look. <laughs> I wore heels uh-huh. every single day for eight hours a day all throughout my residency crazy. in a hospital where you're walking around yes where yeah. you're never still you're always on your feet you're taking steps up and down and running at times <laughs>
0: I wore heels my first day at the hospital, and I literally rolled my ankle. And I said, (laughs) I will never do this again. I am not trying to be cute. (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting. Kind of giving some examples. Last week, we talked about this belief that the Bible is the one true source of knowledge and that there are a lot of dangers from this belief because it creates a mentality of superiority. It affects harmony and relationship and so how do we switch that into a value system and one thing i wanted to talk about that i was like oh obviously we should have talked about this as national hispanic heritage month is this idea that the cultural superiority that happens i mean we've seen the effects here even in the united states we see it in the treatment of natives and the taking of their land treating them like savages i mean when you have an entire system religious system that teaches you that people who believe differently than you are thus inferior to you, it's very easy to enter into a relationship of abuse. We see that happening with slaves and colonial Christianity and the framework that it built to see people of color as less than. Europe's treatment with other nations and the fact that they colonized different parts of Africa and it was this idea that we're bringing civilization to these people. And that idea means I'm not going to respect anything that's there. I'm coming to give and and to force you to adopt something. I'm not here in a reciprocal listening relationship. And that is the heritage of Christianity. Mm -hmm. That is the legacy that we're dealing with. And And if we're not looking at the ways that that's playing out, In our lives and by being critical of our own beliefs and our own interpretation of scripture, it's just going to perpetuate. Your experience as a chaplain has grounded you in having to find commonality with other people who come from a variety of different religious experiences, beliefs, nuances, one of the first things that they taught you was not to proselytize, and that was the one thing that you could get fired for, <laughs> right. to try and convert somebody over to your beliefs. So what was that process like for you when you were growing out the sense of connecting with people based on maybe values rather than having to find this commonality? When, when people ask you to baptize their babies with sprinkling, do you just dunk them instead?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I sprinkle them. <laughs> <laughs> Baptism by immersion only, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, this is this is so funny. When I was in seminary, we used to take these chaplaincy classes. I used to have all these theoretical questions about how my faith would be challenged and not only an interfaith setting, but maybe a secular setting, and how maybe I would be put in these positions where the family is asking me to do something that I don't believe in, but they believe in, and I'm the only one in the hospital that could possibly do this. Mm. And it's so funny how different it actually has played out. Mm. I have done baby baptisms in a way that feel integrous to me, where I, on behalf of the family, I'll say something my rabbi friend taught me how to (laughs) <laughs> Use that phrase, on behalf of this family I lift up. And, or I facilitate a baptism where maybe even if I'm not the one who is baptizing the child, I can walk the parents through a baptismal ritual hmm. where they can have a very meaningful experience with their child before they pass. Yeah. And I found ways to just connect with humans And I have really saw what the need was in that moment, what was meaningful for them, and what felt an ethical violation. And I think not pretending to be something that I am not is important to me. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give any kind of false testimony or false representation of myself. So I don't think I need to be in their face telling them, hey, I am not going to perform this baptism because— I am a Seventh-day Adventist or former Seventh—I don't know what I am. (laughs) I I don't believe in infant baptism. I can simply say, I know you love your child and that you're worried about their salvation. And I can pull from Scripture and validate how the the faith of parents can save their household. And I believe in that, truly. And if this is a very meaningful ritual or a sacrament for them, I would love— to be a part of that experience with them. And I would love to walk them through what that ritual would look like. And I think it would be really awesome if they had the opportunity to do it themselves. A lot of times, you don't have to get into the nitty gritty about what I can do Not do. I'm not even sure if I'm connecting at a value level at that point. I do value community. I do value. I think you
0: are. I think even in that example you shared, you were like, the value of these parents who love their child so much that they want to give them this protection, heavenly protection, that you are validating this very real appropriate desire of a parent for their child. And I'm with you on this.
1: (laughs) In that moment, what it feels like is connecting over an emotional experience, connecting over grief, connecting over loss of control, connecting over despair. Those are all things I have lived and maybe not in the same ways But I can certainly reference those moments in my life in order to give me perspective and allow me a compassionate approach to their reality. And I think what's most important to me in that moment is that they feel connected. And I know that I represent something for them as a chaplain. So I want to honor that my role really is to see how their theology, how their relationship to God, how their spirituality is a resource in that moment. Mm, mm -hmm. What chaplaincy has taught me is that I don't have to make people believe or understand my belief system in order for me to have a meaningful interaction around existential matters. I think also what's interesting as somebody who is approaching from an interfaith or interbelief perspective, it's not just me who has come to terms with the difference. It's also the person who's realizing that I may not be from their faith tradition, but I am here to connect over faith, Mm. over spirituality. And I think that has taught me just as much as my own experience, seeing how people are receptive to that and how even in that moment they can access connection when I'm not the ideal chaplain in that moment. It's a Roman Catholic patient who was expecting to see a priest and I walk into the room and yet yet though they wanted confession and though they wanted communion or sacrament of the sick and I showed up, how... A meaningful conversation can still grow out of it and often does. I think that has taught me a lot about people's bandwidth when there is no other choice. I think when there is a choice, there's this sense of, well, I'd rather opt for somebody, more like-minded individual. And not always, but I've definitely seen that even those who are very apprehensive at first settle into very kind conversation an interesting conversation.
0: That's so true. And I think it has to do with language. I'm thinking right now like how the Bible becomes a language through which people communicate to each other. There's a lot of Bible speak. Born again, salvation, justification, sanctification. These are not words you use in regular conversation,
1: right?
0: (laughs) These are things that have an origin in the Bible And have very specific connotations and create a world, even its own culture. Mm -hmm. And how language is such a powerful tool, not only to communicate, but to build communities, as well as to oppress other communities. So, for example, if you are Catholic, there are certain Catholic terminologies, phrases, shared background and belief system that you are going to access So that communication about spiritual things is just going to be easier, freer. Just like if I'm talking to an SDA, it's going to be freer because we have a shared language, shared culture, Pentecostal, same thing, the church, the rituals of that particular community, and it just makes communication easier. Yes. And when you're talking interfaith, there is a bit of a a language barrier, so to speak, and you have to speak simpler.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes, You, you can't get into the web of it all.
0: Exactly. And and it does force you. Where is the common ground? Exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's a good point.
0: All right. We are halfway through our episode. We're going to take a small break. And if you'd like, you can take a deep breath. Okay. Let's get back into it. And so, and, and even when it comes to when we're talking about, the power of language and having a shared language when we speak, and having to communicate in a different language. As I'm tying this back into National Hispanic Heritage Month, knowing how much even language has been a barrier to dignity, mm-hmm. not being able to communicate yourself sometimes leads somebody in the dominant language group to perceive you as ignorant, as dumb. So when I think about shared belief, I often think about preferring to speak in a specific language. I only want to speak English, or I only want to speak SDA. And when you're saying, I'm willing to communicate and have relationships with people who speak a different spiritual language, for me, I can draw from the stories of the command to be good to the foreigner, and the stranger Mm -hmm. within your gate. How do we be kind to people who speak different spiritual languages than we do? Mm -hmm. That translates in how we treat people who speak actually different languages, but also all the assumptions that we come to the table with. Because we're not speaking the same language, are we making the assumptions that we're superior? Our ideas, our belief systems are superior because we speak fluently in this spiritual language. What are the ways that we can begin to assume intelligence, assume complexity, assume nuance um, Mm -hmm. in in other people's faith journey. Even if they don't have a specific faith, maybe they don't believe in God, but they have a a relationship with mystery. And there are things in their life that they can not account for, and those are things that they can communicate over.
1: I just have an appreciation for the way you're tying these two things together. The language barrier in a very literal sense, from a migrating community here in the U.S., and then the language barrier in a more theological sense. And in the same way, it can be really, really scary to not understand. And it might also, beyond being scary, it might take too much work And I think what you're speaking to is we enjoy those spaces where we just get to jive. Right, speak freely. And speak freely the exercise that it takes, the effort that it takes. To learn a new language. Exactly. To meet it with curiosity. Yep. To be excited about something that's different. We become so protective. This happens in groups as well. Hmm. Sometimes when I'm leading a debriefing with a group, I have to... Opt for an approach that helps people to join one another before stating a difference. Because it's the human tendency to say, Well, let's say this experience made you sad. Well, you already talked about it. And then this other person at the other end of the room is thinking to themselves, well, well, this experience made me angry. And so they start to talk about how they're upset. And when Rather than you two feeling connected over the same experience, you're highlighting what makes you different in mm-hmm. that experience. Yeah. Um, but the truth is is that maybe she's a better host for that anger and you're a better host for the sadness. but you you also have anger right. and she also has sadness. So the way that we lead group or the way that I do sometimes is we all join in the first feeling named. We all talked about how we have an individual experience of that same feeling. But after we're done with sadness, we ask the the group, is the group ready for a difference? When the group all agrees that they're ready to discuss a new feeling then anybody else. And you don't have to feel all the feelings that the group has felt. But it leaves the group feeling connected rather than everybody is like, well, I feel this way and it's a difference of opinion. But we all have a shared experience, and a lot of those shared emotions, we don't have to advocate for one of them and protect it like that's the only one that can be.
0: Yes. So this is so good, and I want to transition just a a little bit to something that we talked about last week, what we walk away with when it comes to shared values. And some people might hold the Bible sacred, and having a value of saying, well, I appreciate people who hold anything sacred, Mm -hmm. right? Because holding things sacred means that you hold yourself accountable. And even when I think about, I think the Bible is too large of a term. I was listening to a podcast this week where there's this woman, not Christian, but all those governors in Texas, they were shipping busloads of migrants Immigrants to DC.
1: Ridiculous.
0: And to Martha's Vineyard and to places that don't have infrastructure to deal with the influx of immigrants. I mean, a lot of people who are meeting these crises are just nonprofit workers. But one of the women who who was traveling, she's been traveling for almost a year, that she didn't realize that when she started the travel that she was pregnant. And so she was coming from, I believe, like Venezuela or Colombia, and she didn't realize she was pregnant. And they walked barefoot to the point that her husband's feet are bruised. And when she's going through this journey of migration, her stomach is growing. She's getting bigger. And she finally gets to D.C. and she is ready to pop. And there's no place for them. And so this woman takes her in, her and her husband, into her home. And she's not a Christian, but she's like, you know, I just kept thinking about the story of Mary and Joseph and that they got to Bethlehem, and there was no place for them. And I thought, I'm going to have a place in my house for them. And she's not she, she's just somebody who held on to a story in the Bible. Somewhere in her mind, that image was sacred. The image of the pregnant woman with no place to have her baby was something that she felt sacred in her mind, that she was going to hold herself accountable to being something different in that story than what was there for Mary and Joseph. And it's so touching because sometimes it's just a line in the Bible that people hold sacred, that that they're not even taking the whole thing as a whole. Sometimes it's just love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And there are people walking around us who want nothing to do with the church, but they live by that line that love your neighbor as yourself. Or maybe they're living by... A myriad of different lines, maybe a "Love your neighbor as yourself" from the Bible, or something else from Rumi, or something else from Buddha, and these things that just that, that are good in the world, yeah. that they've collected over time and said, "This is what it means to be good and human." And when I heard that story, I just thought, "We know too much of the Bible. I'd be happy if we all just had one line that we <laughs> held ourselves accountable to." Uh, rather than try to take this entire book and really, it becomes
1: almost meaningless at
0: some point. You make me
1: think part of the problem is that we believe we are the kind of people that we aspire to be. I know in my body and in my mind that I think very differently than the way that I used to. And I feel like I have discovered a way of relating to people and to God and to myself that feels not only more genuine in the sense of authenticity, if I can bring my fullness of self into the moment, I've discovered a whole new language in which God speaks to me.
0: And I think sometimes scholarly work, the Bible work is often very logical, heady reason, but you're really driving in some of your experience. So one thing, I wanted to bring in a few examples of what I mean by hold something sacred and just to give more context. And last week we talked about maybe it's the voice of your grandmother. And what we talked about giving something an ability to be sacred is you're giving it authority to speak to you, it's something that you hold yourself accountable to and that you listen to in a way that's not overly critical, but that you're willing to be tamed by this voice. Another thing that you might hold sacred is the voice of the marginalized, the experience of the oppressed, where you're saying, I don't want to impose my ideas, my thoughts, even my judgment upon this community. I want to let it speak to me because I value what's here and I'm willing to be held accountable to this voice. So these are just examples in different ways, but also just praising the fact that anybody holds something sacred at all.
1: And that there's not actual meaninglessness. Just because somebody is secular, just because right. they have a value system that's maybe based on more political, political ethic does not mean that they don't have meaning and depth in their life. And I think sometimes religious people have the assumption that you have to have a strong faith or belief system in order to have a complex view of the world.
0: And I believe that humanity Even if you were just like somebody who's like, I'm dedicated towards the bettering of humanity and making a more inclusive culture, United States or whatever. I I am
1: a huge fan of the humanist society. Actually, I would classify myself as a Seventh-day Adventist humanist. Love it. (laughs) Where can I join? (laughs) But
0: that there are those who hold the voice of the collective Mm -hmm. in high regard as sacred as the voice of God in some ways, to say, I believe that humanity coming together and working in collection and in unison towards the common good of humanity, that that is something that can be trusted. Now, it doesn't mean that that they're always going to have it right or there doesn't need to be correction, but that is something that some people value, and I think that's a beautiful thing to hold yourself accountable to is the collective society, that we live in a world With other people in order to get along harmoniously that there is law and order and society and education and constantly improving upon itself that that is something to be valued
1: yeah and and we've said this before but we have benefited so much from social ethic in the unique position we find ourselves in I grew up in this church and I found it to be a really precious experience for myself And at the same time, it made it very inhospitable for me. Um, As a woman, as a LGBT bisexual woman. Yes, and and the ways that played out in my Hispanic culture felt 10 times more pronounced that these systems of hierarchy and oppression were very evident to me and to my system. I'm talking about my personhood, Mm. my psyche. And so I think I experienced a lot of oppression within my body and within my psyche, where I was kind of recreating what is happening on a systemic level inside my internal system and telling which parts of me are welcomed and which parts of me are not welcomed, which parts of me are allowed to show their face and are cared for and treated with privilege, and which parts of me are marginalized and Exiled to not show up, and I think learning to have love for these parts of me that I was ashamed of, that I had exiled, helped me to access love for the people in the communities on the outer level. So everything Mm. is a reflection of. You talk about the collective conscience that you have referred to in past weeks, but everything that happens within ourselves is a reflection of what's happening in the larger community. Yeah. And I think finding that liberation within myself has helped me to access and offer that to people around me. That's such a great point. If you have one line from the Bible
0: that you hold sacred, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, Yeah, I think as you're saying, you cannot love somebody if you have not accepted yourself. When we look at the treatment of even the homeless within our society, there is a core value of that has marginalized the part of ourselves that, are, that we feel not worth anything if we are not contributing to work, to the capitalistic culture of our society, right? Unless you are contributing to the economy, you are not worth anything. You are not yeah. worth shelter. You are not worth food. And there are parts of ourselves that just are. Yeah. And, and do we let ourselves just be? Or do we have to constantly be on the move? Because there is a sense of, if you don't work, you don't eat. (laughs)
1: Listen, when I sit down with a patient who has a bigoted view of something or is holding strong prejudice, any time I see somebody who has hate or hurtful attitudes towards other, I am always curious about how that is experienced internally. What parts of themselves do they hate? What parts of themselves are they excommunicating? Because that wound will also help heal a social wound. And I think I'm always interested in where is the separation? Because that's also where the healing happens. You know, something that you talked about last week,
0: the point that you walked away with was God speaks. The belief We can translate the belief that the Bible is the only one truth, and we can translate that into a value, and that value is just God speaks, you know, whether you believe that God spoke through the Bible, or whether you believe that God speaks to you in everyday life, whether through nature, whether through your own body, whether through the collective humanity. Something that I kept harping on was wisdom speaks to us, but I also wanted to make the point that God is bigger than just wisdom, and like love speaks, hope speaks, kindness speaks. And I would say these are all attributes of what I would call God. So we encounter things like justice, or we encounter innocence, or we encounter empathy. These are things or qualities of God that sometimes we know them intuitively. When somebody does something kind for me, I can say, wow, well, that's very kind.
1: And we often thank God. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we often, if somebody offered me a random $100, I walk away thanking God for it. You know, Thank you so much, God. <laughs> so, we do feel God embedded in our experience.
0: Sometimes we do know it intuitively, but there are also different variations and exceptions of what is good that take time for us to learn. But these are experiences within the collective humanity, within a, the experiential world, mm-hmm. that God is speaking to us, that through these broken down attributes, of mm-hmm. selflessness and self-sacrifice and courage. These things that collectively, I think you put all these good attributes together and and people could say, well, that's that's God. Whether you're yeah. secular or whether you are Christian or whether you're of some other religious belief, these are all pretty much universal
1: good things. That and that we can you recognize. could perceive an agent of good working yep. through these attributes. It's just... It's just really powerful. I think God finds us and as long as there's a disposition and openness, I think that we can all have this personal relationship with God and develop a language that's unique to every person yeah. because our experience with they, them, her, him <laughs> is is also unique. Right. Every relationship has its uniqueness to it i think that's what's beautiful so may you hold something sacred may you hear the sacred speak to you
0: and may you live in harmony with all that is good yes Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Amago Gay, where we give some examples from last week's episode of the Redefine series, where we take a look at bigger boxes for a bigger God and looking to see how we can find commonality and relationships in common value. Our co-host for today was Roxanne Del Valle. If you'd like to follow her, you can do so on Instagram at Roxanne Marie. And you can follow me on Instagram at Kendra Arsnow with the X. Our sponsors for today are Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International, so be sure to sign up for their newsletters, where you will get the latest updates on queer news and happenings. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please be sure to like and subscribe and share this episode with a friend. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. I look forward to being with you all next week. This episode was created and engineered by yours truly, And sponsored by Spectrum Magazine and SDA Kinship International.